Over 20 years ago, Esther and I were driving home from some friend's house. Uh, it was pretty, it was late at night, honestly, really late at night. And I was driving my 1970 international pickup. It was my work truck. We had kind of met at some friend's house. Esther was in our little minivan. And uh, we were on our way home. And I see a, stra- a lady uh, on the side of the road kind of stranded by herself. So I pull over and ask her if she needs a ride. And, you know, if everything was okay. This is kind of before the days of cell phones. So there's a good chance she had no way of contacting anybody. So I pull over and ask if she needs a ride and come to find out she does. So I jump out of the truck real quick, run back to, to tell Esther. She's by herself. And so I said, hey, I'm going to give this lady a ride real quick. Just follow me. I don't want to be like alone, but Esther had the kids in the van, so she couldn't jump in with us. So I was like, just follow me. We'll drop her off, and then we'll head home. She's like, okay. And so she follows me. What she didn't tell me was that the minivan was on E, like below E. She's riding on fumes at this point and, and doesn't tell me. And I think we're just riding up the road. It turns out we're, we're on like a 20-minute trek into the depths of the inner city, you know, rough part of town uh, with, this, with this gal with my wife in tow. And so we, we get in, and we're driving, and I'm like, you know, hey, what's your name, blah, blah. And before she does anything, she goes, <laughs> the lady asked me, so do you party? And uh, and I, I kid you not, I am naive enough that I'm thinking, I'm kind of a fun guy. Like, I, like to, I like some chips and queso, you know. You know I've, we even play poker with gummy bears sometimes. Like, I, I like to party. I was like, well, absolutely, I like to party. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And based on what she then offered for $20, we were not speaking the same language at all. And though I was flattered to be offered so much for such a bargain, um, I, I, de- I, I, did, I declined. I declined. But wanting to help her out and give her 20 bucks, I said, I'll make you a deal. If you'll listen to me for the whole drive, I'll give you $20 when we get there. She said, a deal. And so I started to share my faith with her. And so I, you know, I was telling her about Jesus, telling her about what he'd done for me and what I believed he could do for her. And it turned out to be about a 30 minute drive that we were together. And because I, we'd made an agreement that I wouldn't pay her until I got there. She not only gave her life to Jesus, but found a local church and joined and became a member and decided to tithe all in that 30 minutes. You know, very agreeable for $20. But when we reached our destination, I prayed for her. I committed to continue praying for her. I gave her $20, and this is back when, like, $20 was a lot to us, you know, like last Tuesday. <laughs> I exited my truck, and I went back to tell Esther, you know, kind of what had happened, what had, like, you're not going to believe who I just picked up. And before I even get there, she cracks the window and says, get me to a gas station now. She's she like, I'm serious. I'm like a half inch below E. And so we, uh, so we jump in, and we did make it to the gas station. She said it died, like, as she was pulling in. We, uh... We filled her up, and I, I personally believe it was a, a verifiable miracle. And if, you're, if you need a miracle and you're into a miracle, I think Esther can get you a transcript of the prayers she sent up and the curses she sent forward. And I think something in that combination is how a miracle happens. But the Good Samaritan story is one of Jesus' most famous and inspiring parables. There's hundreds of ministries named Good Samaritan. It's a, it's a phrase that even people who don't know church and don't know the scripture use often, the Good Samaritan. And the story goes something like this. It's from Luke 10. It says, Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. 
But when he, had, when he saw the man lying there, he crossed on the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with oil and wine and bandaged them. He then put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn, where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. This is the word of the Lord. I opened this morning with a story of me giving a ride to the stranded woman because oftentimes our Good Samaritan stories don't look quite like Jesus' Good Samaritan stories. Some of them turn out comic, like mine, and some turn out disastrous. But it doesn't change the fact that this story is powerful for us. Um, as you know, if you were here last week, we're now in the second week of our saint series where we pick a saint all through November. We pick a different saint from history. When I say saint, I mean just a believer, somebody like you and me, some ordinary person who impacted our community, who impacted the people of God in a powerful way. Last week we did Brennan Manning. We talked about the fact that he was this incredible man of faith who set out to, to, to do good and to be good and found that he couldn't. He was, a, he was an alcoholic. He struggled with alcohol his entire life. But he found the grace of God and communicated it more powerfully than anybody I know. Uh, he wrote the book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, and, and it was a very uh, powerful book. Well, this week we moved from an alcoholic to a prisoner. Anybody know who Prisoner 7053 was? It's kind of a famous picture when you see her. Rosa Parks, most famous for refusing to give up her seat on a public bus to a white passenger. Her refusal to vacate that seat led to the Montgomery public bus boycott that lasted about a year. And that introduced the world to um, a man named Martin Luther King Jr., a complete unknown Baptist minister at the time, stepped onto the national stage because of Rosa Parks. A few years before Rosa took her stand, Montgomery lawmakers passed a law saying that there had to be a white section and a black section. There had to be a division between races. actually made it illegal for a white passenger to sit next to a black passenger. There had to be separate sections. But what they did was they allowed the bus drivers to choose how many seats because the bus company didn't want to draw a hard line and have one side full and not take any extra passengers because the other side was empty. They wanted to make sure the buses were all full. So they made it to where the line could move. They made it to where one day there could be four rows of black seats, and the next day half the bus could be black seats. But the bus driver got to decide. Well, on December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks was uh, getting off work at a department store where she was a seamstress, and she got on the bus, and she sat in the black section. And as they went from stop to stop, the white section was filling up. And so the bus driver came, and he moved the sign back a few rows, which now put Rosa Parks in the white section. And there were seats next to her. Where the, there was two white passengers that couldn't sit down. There were seats next to her, and the bus driver said, you're, you're going to need to get up and move back. And she said, I'm, I'm not moving. And he said, ma'am, just get up and move back, or I'll have to call the police. And she said, you may do so. And so she took a stand and would not move. And there was also actually on the books was that no passenger. There was some discrepancy as to whether this should have said white passenger or or any passenger. But there was a law in the books that no passenger could be compelled to get up from a seat once they were seated. So technically, she knew this law and knew that she wasn't supposed to be able to be asked to get up. And so she has to sit down. Well, they called uh, 
James Blake, the bus driver, called the police, and the police showed up and arrested Rosa Parks. I feel like first we've got to get some background on Rosa. She was kind of a stubborn person. She had some backbone in her by nature and some sass, if you want to be honest. She was a little bitty thing. But um, she says in her memoir, I read her memoir, what she says was, I learned very early that to be black in the South meant you were going to have to learn to fight. And so she goes, it was very often I would get picked on physically, usually by groups of white girls, but sometimes by boys. And they would always pick on me, assuming they could take whatever they want, do whatever they want. And I would teach them very quick that though they might win, they would take some licks in the process. She goes, I could bite and scratch and kick and scream with the best of them. So she was, she had some backbone. She wasn't um, pushover by any means, but she knew that she also knew what it took to survive in the South. And she does tell stories of some good experiences. She had some generosity she received from white people, especially in church. Um, and so she, uh, she lived in the duality of both. As she grew older, she learned to turn her kind of tough sense of determination into value for her. She graduated high school. Uh, she had to drop out for a little while because her grandmother was sick. Went back and got her degree, and this was a time in the country when only about 7% of African Americans uh, received a, a, a high school education. And so she fought and went to school at night, did everything she could to get her high school degree. And so she was a very determined person. Uh, she also uh, was sassy. She was the volunteer secretary for the Montgomery chapter of the NAACP. And at that time, the, the head, uh, Edgar Nixon, the head of the NAACP, was uh, a major chauvinist. And so every time somebody would bring up, maybe we could, you know, mobilize some of the women in the black community to help us, he would shoot it down. He said, this is, he said, uh, uh, equality work is man's work. He said, women belong in the kitchen and they need to stay there. And so that's, that was kind of his stance. Every time somebody would bring up, you know, that a lot of the women would help, he would say, no, women belong in the kitchen, they should stay there. Well, Rosa, every single time he would do that, would raise her hand and go, excuse me, sir, what about me? Should I go home to my kitchen? And he would get frustrated because he would go, I need a secretary and you're a good one, so you have to stay. <laughs> but, uh, and she knew that he, she knew that he couldn't live without, and this was also a time when a man being a secretary was unheard of, so, so she made sure, apparently to his exasperation, every single time he brought up where a woman's place was, she would immediately jump in and go, what about me? Should I go home to my kitchen? Just to frustrate him. She said she could see the steam come from his ears when she would do that. So she's kind of a, she's kind of a, even though she's small and, and petite, she's a sassy, kind of hard-headed person. Had a lot of determination. And a lot of people tend to think when they read about Rosa Parks that this determination, this backbone, is why she launched the, the civil rights movement. This determination, I'm not moving. And, and there was a, you know, back in the kind of civil rights era that was, that became kind of a catchphrase, I'm not moving. When they would have their peaceful resistance, they would, do kind of stand-ins, they would say, I'm not moving. And they were quoting Rosa Parks. And she kind of got this reputation for being set and just a solid woman. But the, the reason I don't believe this is why Rosa Parks was such a, a key point in the revolution is because other people had taken stands. In 1946, nine years before Rosa Parks run in, Geneva Johnson was arrested for the exact same offense. She was sitting in a white section. They moved the line back, and she stayed in her seat, and they called the police, and she was arrested. No public outcry. In 1949, three years later, Viola White and Katie Kingfield and two small children were arrested for the exact same thing. They threw the children in a jail cell for the exact same crime. No public outcry. 
Also in 49, two teenagers from New Jersey, where the buses were desegregated, jumped on a bus, not realizing it was a crime to sit in the white section, sat down, and they were both arrested. Uh, they sat down next to a white man and were immediately arrested. No outcry. In 1955, the same year Rosa took her stand, Claudette Coleman and Mary Louise Smith, in two different incidents, were arrested for not giving up their seats to white passengers. Nothing from the public. At this point in history, Montgomery, Alabama, was simply not engaged in the civil rights resistance. Black community had grown resigned to their fate. Actually, they say when Martin Luther King moved into town and he took the pastorate, he tried to feel out where the town was, and he's the one who said the, the community was completely clueless to the fact that there was even really a resistance going on. Like they were just not at all engaged. So along with all these other people who had taken the exact same stand, Rosa takes hers. Obviously expecting no different treatment than anybody else had gotten. She knew nobody else had had made a stir by doing the exact same thing. But what made Rosa Parks' situation different? If other people tried doing the same thing to no avail, and Rosa Parks is famous for hers, what made the difference? My theory is that Rosa Parks was connected. She was engaged in relationships and well-connected with other human beings. Montgomery, Alabama at the time was made up of, a lot of cities in that day were, of a, a ton of small kind of subcultures and small communities and and uh most people were connected to one or two, your church, your little guilds and groups and clubs all over the place that people would, would join. Rosa Parks was a member of dozens. She was not only the volunteer secretary of the NAACP, she was a longtime member of the Methodist Church. She helped run a youth ministry in the local Lutheran Church. She spent most of her weekends volunteering in a homeless shelter. She was in a botanical gardening club that she went to weekly to garden with other women. On Wednesday nights, she met with a a, a knitting guild to knit blankets for hospitals that they would then take and donate to hospitals. She volunteered her dressmaking services for poor families that had special events and couldn't afford new clothes. She would make new clothes for poor families. And she also uh, regularly provided emergency clothes alterations for rich white people who had parties and mostly teenage debutantes who needed a dress altered for an event. And she would rush in and save the day doing alterations. Rosa was a good Samaritan through and through. And I mean this in more than one way. One of the aspects we almost always forget about the Rosa Parks or the Good Samaritan story is the situation about the Good Samaritan himself. We have a tendency when we read this story to think about the Jewish audience that was hearing it, that that Jesus intentionally picked a Samaritan to to kind of challenge his audience because the Samaritans were hated. If you're not familiar with who the Samaritans are, it's a long history. I don't want to get too into it, but they were technically kind of Jewish, only they had had a split years ago and... Now there was huge animosity that went all the way back to where you're supposed to worship. Like when they brought the Ark of the Covenant and kind of founded Jerusalem, they took the Ark of the Covenant from a land that is now Samaria, and they never quite accepted that. And so there's been years and years and years of feuding between these two lands. And we kind of focus on that 
when, when we talk about this story, we say that when Jesus chose the Samaritan to be his hero, he chose the hated person, the person that everybody in his audience would have disliked. And that's what made it powerful. What we don't think about is what that would have been like for the Samaritan. Let me give you a little background. I don't know. So this is the, the land of Israel in the time of Jesus. That orange area uh, right there is Judea. So that's what we would classically think of as Israel. So that's where Jerusalem's at. It's, it's where most of the stories are at. Originally, that whole belt would have been that pretty much everything on the map would have been Israel. Like back in the days of, of uh, Jacob and the, the conquest, like they in the days of David, that would have all been Israel. But in the time of Jesus, just that orange spot was classically considered Israel. It was uh, called Judea. These are actually areas that the Roman government created. The Roman government split them into regions. But for the most part, it also followed racial barriers. So the Samaritans lived. Okay, one thing I do got to point out, Galilee up here, that's where Jesus is from. So Israel kind of had a split in it. It was kind of separated by Samaria. A lot of people don't realize that uh, they weren't actually together. About 300 years before Jesus, some guys kind of took control of Israel. They were Jewish. It was the first time Israel had been in Jewish control in a long time. And they tried to go up and reconvert everybody in Samaria, all the people in the north. They had success in the extreme north in Galilee. Those people kind of came back to Judaism. They kind of came back and they would travel down to Jerusalem for festivals and things like that. The chunk in the middle, which I believe is right there, Samaria uh, never would convert back. So not only do they have eons of animosity, but when other parts of Israel came back, they would not. They held firm. So that kind of deepens the, the, the wound, I guess. And so uh, very often the people in Galilee who wanted to come down to Jerusalem for festivals had to travel a road that's somewhere right in there. They would travel this road between Galilee and Jerusalem. And it's a, it was a very famous trek. And actually, uh, some of Jesus's like weirdest teachings that are kind of hard to understand. You don't understand why he's talking so weird. If you go and look at where he's at and you trace it on the map, he's in that middle ground. So the people he's talking to, he's traveling from Galilee down to Jerusalem for a festival or something. He's in that middle ground talking to Samaritans. And when you know that, it kind of makes a little more sense why he's speaking differently than he would if he were in his hometown of Galilee or down in Jerusalem. And so... That trek everybody knew was dangerous. That trek everybody knew was risky because you were in technically foreign land. So if Jesus had made the setting of his parable there, it would have been very, very different. Because you would expect a Samaritan to show up there because you're in Samaria. And that was a trek everybody knew. But he doesn't. He picks the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. Which is down there. I don't know how you can see how well you can see, but the white dot is Jerusalem, the black dot on the other end is Jericho. So this is a road that's deep in Judean territory. Deep in there. This area here, you expect that's borderland. You expect that to be touchy. But this is well into Judean territory. So what's that tell us about the Samaritan that did so much good in Jesus' story? He's far from his home. He's in a land where he's hated. He's probably marginalized, mistreated, probably experiencing abuse of some kind. And the story of the Good Samaritan, the revelation, isn't only that Jesus picked a bad guy to play the protagonist, but it's also this. A person who has received nothing but hate can still show love. 
The Samaritan isn't showing love in the safety of Samaria and taking the beaten person to a Samaritan inn and spending Samaritan money and promising to pay a Samaritan bill afterwards. This is the Rosa Parks story. Though Rosa didn't admit, or she did admit to experiencing moments of kindness and generosity from white people growing up, she also admitted the vast majority of her life was being marginalized at best, abused at worst. She was in a land that didn't want her there. And what did she do with all that frustration? She showed love. Sociologists teach us that most people have friends that are like them, statistically. We have a few acquaintances that might be richer than us or poorer than us or might be a different race than us, but most of us on the whole, our closest friends are similar to us in race and socioeconomic standing and every other division, similar backgrounds. Both historians and sociologists who have studied Rosa Parks' life say she's a, she was an anomaly. Her relationship spanned all the gambits of racial and socioeconomic division in Montgomery, Alabama. More than anybody else they've been able to find. She, had, she was good friends with college professors and field hands. She, she made dresses for poor black people and rich white people. She was often in the homes of politicians, and she created homes for homeless. Her husband was fond of saying, Rosa eats more potlucks than home-cooked meals, because she was out doing so much good. That, you know, back then, you didn't go anywhere without taking food with you, and so she ate potlucks everywhere she was out serving. When Rosa Parks was arrested, her parents called Edgar Nixon at the NAACP. Edgar called a prominent lawyer who Rosa had just recently gone to his house and altered dresses for his three daughters for a ball that they had to go to. The lawyer called Joanne Robinson, a professor at Alabama State University, who was the head of a very powerful political group of teachers. She had dug uh, um, Roberta or Robinson, Joanne Robinson. She had dug her out of a hole by showing up and helping do some, some alterations to a dress she had to wear. Joanne loved her. Rosa had helped each one of these people at some point. She was arrested on Thursday evening. By Monday morning, there was 35,000 leaflets in the hands of almost every teacher and every student in Alabama going to every parent in the city. Many, many, many of them white who knew Rosa Parks personally. The white families that she had helped were outraged at what had happened. Many of the people she knitted blankets with were white. They mobilized a little campaign passing out leaflets. What made Rosa Parks different than all the other people who had taken the exact same stand that she took was the relational capital she had built up by being good and doing good, by being kind, by loving. Despite the fact that she was mistreated, despite the fact that white families that would have her over to alter dresses wouldn't dream of asking her to stay for dinner because you weren't allowed to do that. She still showed up the next time they called to do good. Despite the fact that she had a deep desire to see change, she did not like the injustice. She was not comfortable with her standing. She wanted to see her nation find justice for all. 
So you can't say that she didn't care. Like she, she was in the NAACP because she wanted to see the lot of black people in Alabama improved. But even in the midst of that hunger for something better, she still showed up at white people's doors to help whenever they called. A person who receives nothing but hate can still love. I know we use this too much, this, this phrase, literally. We say that all the time. I'm literally going to die if I don't. Which, actually, I saw in the dictionary, they have, it's the Webster's Dictionary, I think, has actually now changed the definition of literally. The second definition of literally is figuratively. <laughs> what good are definitions anymore? Like, because we use it more often figuratively than we do literally. I'm literally going to die if I don't. But, but Rosa Parks' kindness literally change the world. We say all the time that, you know, what, what are my small acts of kindness going to do? What, like, it's a drop in the bucket. How, like, being good to people. What, against the, the vast amount of evil out there, against the, how bad the world is, what can I do just by being kind? What can I do just by showing love? Like, my, my little tiny circle, you know, what can I do? Rosa Parks, small acts of kindness literally changed the world. This is why I chose Rosa Parks for this year's saint. Not because she was a successful political activist. Not because she was a pivotal point in introducing the country to Martin Luther King Jr. Not even because she was a truly influential woman in history. She was all of those. But I chose Rosa Parks because she loved well. Rich people, poor people, white people, black people, young people, old people. Rosa Parks loved people. So how do we respond to this? Did everyone see Ellen's big statement a couple weeks ago? It bounced all over social media. She, she got caught, if you didn't see it, she got caught sitting with George W. Bush at a baseball game. And her camp went nuts. Because they got pictures of her laughing with him. Like, that's so terrible, you know. And so social media exploded. Like, how could you? And so she came out on her show and did like a little speech. And it kind of went viral. Look it up. It's worth looking at. And she said, guess what? I have friends that I don't agree with. I know that shocks everybody. But, you know, not everybody I'm friends with is in my camp. And she ended the thing, she goes, I end every show by saying, be kind to one another. I don't just mean the people who agree with you. I mean, be kind to one another. I mean, it's a, and if anything tells you that, it went viral. People were playing it like it was the most profound and beautiful thing ever said anywhere. And if that doesn't tell you how broken our world is, like, what else could? That somebody can say, be nice, and it, like, goes viral. Because nobody's ever heard that before. Like, nobody's ever been told to be nice to people. Like, how has our world gotten so far off that a celebrity saying be nice makes the news? So I'm just going to rip off Ellen tonight, or this morning, whenever, whenever, and say be kind to one another. That's how you respond to this. Be kind to one another. Show love. That's it. Go love people. I honestly believe that would change the world. I, I really do. Because here's the thing. We're not going to change the world coming to church. That's not even what, what church is for. Like, there, I don't know if you noticed, we didn't build a huge sanctuary. 
there's not enough room here to bless enough people to put a drop in the bucket. That's not why we're here. We're here so that when you come, you get filled up and loved and blessed and prayed for. And someone looks you in the eyes and say, I see you. And you have a chance to get strengthened and encouraged so that you can go out and do ministry out there. We don't come in here to do ministry. We go out there to do ministry. We come in here sometimes limping, sometimes dragging ourselves in, sometimes barely wanting to come. And then while we're here, like April said, we get encouraged and we get loved and the worship medicates us and we, and we get strengthened and built up so that we can go back out into the battle and do good. That's where the ministry happens, out there. Go out there and if every single person leaves here and goes out there and loves people, then we start to make a dent. Then things start to change. So be the blessing. That's it. Be a blessing. One of my, you know, one of the verses, verses everybody used, for God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish. We usually read that to mean God so loved the people who get saved that he sent his only begotten son. What if God so loved the world out there that he saved us so that we could go out there and bless them? God so loved the whole world that he sent his son so that he would have a group of people who could be a blessing to the whole world. God told that to Abraham. Through you, every family in the world shall be blessed. Didn't tell Abraham, didn't just tell Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Like sometimes that's what we, we come to church thinking that I want to be blessed. We come to be blessed. And that's fine. But he blesses you and says, because I love the world so much, I'm going to bless you. So that you can go bless them. So you can go serve them and love them. There's only two kinds of people in the world. There's the people who are on your team and the people who you were sent to bless and minister and serve. That's it. There's no enemy. Stop treating the other people like the enemy. Either they're on your team helping you be a blessing or they're the people you're supposed to bless. Those are the two people. And here's the thing. Nowadays, you know, at OTCC, I, I can look all you guys up on social media, which is awesome. I troll you guys all the time. It's like my job. And, uh, yeah, I can't troll Doug. Right. <laughs> And, and I get to see the stuff you post. If you're posting cuss words, I get to see those. You post yourself with a beer. I see that. Partying, dancing, whatever. And I can promise you I'm not going to pick on you for any of that stuff. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm not, it's not my job to pick on anything you want to go out and do. And we now have OTCC cups. Like, you can take an OTCC cup and take a picture with it and beer. I'm fine. But here's the thing. If on your social media feed, you're being mean and nasty and ugly, please don't put the cup on there. If you're picking on people on social media and you're saying nasty things and you're calling the other side of whatever argument stupid, just leave the cup at home. Don't, don't put the cup. I think it'd be cool if when we came to church, we checked in, let people know we're here. But before you ever do that, look at your feed. If your feed is mean, don't check in. Is that too far? That might be too far. I don't know. But if you're mean and ugly and you're not loving people and being nice, you don't have to put our name on that. You can leave that off. We don't want to be known for that. We want to love. We want to love well. Even on Facebook, where it's unheard of. The thing is, some of those things that we pick on, 
in the Christian church, some of those things, some of those behaviors, you know, that we say you can't do, the don'ts, the list of don'ts. A lot of those, you gotta pull from, you gotta pull some obscure verses from three or four different places, just random verses and put together an argument that says you shouldn't do those things. Like, I remember someone telling me once, you know, your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit, so don't drink coffee. And I was like, I don't care where I'm in the world. If I visit a temple, first thing I'm looking for is a coffee shop. Like, I will drink coffee right in a temple. Don't even think for a second I won't drink coffee in a temple. So why shouldn't coffee be in my temple? I don't get that at all. But you've you got to create these weird arguments. But I can tell you one thing. You can't go very far in the Bible before it tells you to love. I don't even have to mount a very good argument. I can, I can grab that one from anywhere. So if I see you on Facebook and you're being nasty and you're not loving, I can pick on you for that one. I can absolutely jump on you for that one and say, hey, that's, don't. I don't know about all the other stuff. I see gray area in almost every other argument. Love's pretty black and white. It's what we're called to do. And here's the hard part. Here's where Rosa Parks comes in. When you're out there and you're trying to love and, and you're, you're trying to be nice to people and they're just mean. And they're picking on you for your faith or they're telling you that this whole thing is an illusion and they're, you know, they're arguing with you and they're being nasty to you. They're calling you ignorant and they're trying to undermine or marginalize you. Guess what your job is? Love. That's it. You don't get to say, hey, I tried and they were mean to me. The Samaritan, they were mean to the Samaritan. They were mean to Rosa Parks. Because that's the hard thing. It's, it's the cycle of violence. Somebody, you try to be nice, someone says something mean to you. Well, you have every right to say something mean to them, which gives them every right to say something mean to you, which gives you every right to say it. That never stops. It never stops. Only when somebody, and this is where the cross comes in, only when somebody responds to violence with a cross and says, I will not respond in kind. I will just take the abuse and show love instead. Take up your cross and follow me. That's what that means. It means, yes, they're going to throw abuse at you. Yes, they're going to say mean things. Yes, they're going to talk bad about your faith. They're going to talk bad about all kinds of things. They're going to talk bad about your political affiliations. Or, and your job is to take that and show love. That's what a cross is. It says, I could, I could respond with 50 legions of angels. Jesus said, I absolutely could respond violently. Don't think for a second I'm powerless. I could respond in kind, but I won't. I'll go to the cross and I will take the abuse and in, in turn I will show love. And with that, I will change the world. We love them anyway. Jesus said it this way, and I'll close with this. You've heard the law that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you Different from anyone else, because even pagans do that. 
Last week we talked about Brendan Manning and the grace of God. We talked about the fact that wherever you stand, we told the, the, the prodigal son story, if you're the younger brother and, and you're just beat up and wallowing, when you turn to God, he runs to you. He forgets all that and runs to you. If you're the older brother and you're faithful and, and you've, you've been on track, he shows up and he says, all that I have is yours. It's grace either way. It's the grace of God that covers us. But here's the catch. Have you ever talked to someone and they, and, uh, about grace and they're talking to you about grace and you're like, it cannot be that easy. There's got to be a catch. Have you ever felt that in your gut when someone talks about grace? Like, like there has to be something. There has to be a catch. I can sum up the catch in one sentence, one very, very short sentence. There is a catch to grace. There is a catch to, to God loving you unconditionally wherever you are and whatever you're doing. There is a catch. I can sum it up in one sentence. Because God does love you. His grace is for you. His arms are open to you. And the one catch is, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. There's a whole parable and I could get into it. Where are we at on time? Do we have time? No, we don't have time. Where Jesus tells a parable, I'm going to do it anyway, where Jesus tells a parable of a guy who, who had a huge debt. I'm going to give the super short version. Huge debt. And, the, and the, the lender said, you know what, he begged, please give me more time. I promise I'll pay it back. The lender wiped it clean. So you know what? Never mind. You're, you're free. And with that freedom, with that ridiculous grace, with that unbelievable... There, like, how can it be this? There was millions of dollars. How can it be this easy? He, he sees opportunity in that. And so as he goes out, he finds a guy who owes him a few bucks, $20 or something. And says so he straight, like, choked him and said, pay me what you owe me. I'm square with the house now. I can actually make some money. Pay me. And word got back to the lender. And he said, no, actually threw him and his whole family in prison. He said, you were shown so much grace, so much love. How can you not turn around and do the same? Go and do likewise.